Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Bill Thompson of Spartan Forge, and we are talking all about the rut and specifically what Bill has learned from looking at tons of color GPS data from different parts of the U.S. and how that applies to hunting the big woods during the rut. We just discussed doe bedding, how bucks move during di- different phases of the rut, lockdown areas, stand strategies, and hunting scrapes, and much more. So this podcast is also just brought to you by the Spartan Forge app, which uh, Bill is the founder of. It utilizes years of military background and machine learning to pull from millions of data points to accurately predict deer movement, including GPS data th- of as Bill has said, accumulation of up to 2,000 years of GPS data, 30 years of weather, academic, and state research. The new app will include GPS mapping with incredible aerial imagery, offline dependability, deer prediction, weather updates, journal entries, and much more. As you'll hear coming up here, Bill had said that the app is in the App Store's hands right now for the full production version. So that could be out as early as today, or that might be a couple days out. But it's exciting to see that going into production and appreciate everyone being patient with that with the new app launch. You can use the code East Meets West to save 25% off of the Spartan Forge app at SpartanForge.ai. Tethered is a company founded on the principles of educating the hunting community on saddle hunting while creating the most innovative, lightweight, safe products for saddle hunting. They have mobile gear hunting options for all types of hunters and they're continuing to push the envelope. I'm running the Phantom Saddle, the Predator Platform. I'm running Sis Haulers on each side, the 8mm ropes. I've got the full setup from Tethered. And just a tip for all day sits during the rut, I would highly recommend utilizing the recliner to add and move up and down your back to be able to, for those all day sits to stay comfortable. To learn more about tethered and saddle hunting, head over to tetherednation.com. Maven is building the highest quality optics at half the price of their competitors through their direct-to-consumer business model. They just want to create the best optics for the job, period. Their products are back with a lifetime no-fault warranty and an incredible customer experience. I'm using the B3 8x30 binos in all of my whitetail hunts. They're super lightweight, so it feels like they're not even there, and they do really well in low light for that small package. You can use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full-price optics order at mavenbuilt.com. And Go Wild is a free social community built by hunters for hunters. Join me on Go Wild today and you'll get 10 bucks to spend on gear just for setting up your account. You'll keep unlocking Go Wild rewards and you can now see my complete gear setups over on the app just under my name, Bo Martonic. And so you can download it in the app store or time to go wild.com and use the code East meets West to save 10% off of all hunting gear on the website, which includes tethered saddles. So check that out and you will not be disappointed. All right. So, uh, as I said, on today's episode, we have Bill Thompson here. It's the rut. It's November the third, um, as this releases here and, <laughs> 
I, man, I'm at work <laughs> and I am just jealous of everybody that's in the woods right now. And my cell cameras have been lighting up. Things are going crazy. The weather is perfect for this week, at least here in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm just excited for everyone to get out and enjoy this time of year. It's my favorite time to be in the whitetail woods. So enjoy this podcast with Bill Thompson and good luck hunting the rut. All right, we're live. Bill Thompson from Spartan Forge. Welcome back, man. This is your uh, third time, I think, you've appeared on the podcast this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other time was what with Johnny and Steve. And then with Johnny, and just Johnny the first time. And then just Johnny the first time. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's good to, good to have you back on. And we're recording this November 2nd, which is going to go out. I'm actually going to release it tonight. So once after we're done here, I'm going to go through and edit it and get it up. But it's a uh, it's a hot time of year. Yeah, absolutely. I'm. Uh, I was just telling you earlier. Uh, uh, you know, when, when we we're getting ready to start recording, that I was driving down the road tonight, coming knowing I was going to have to head back to my office to do work and be like, "There's nothing I want to do right now other than be out in the woods." <laughs> it's all i'm thinking about yeah and you haven't got to hunt really at all other than when you were home in north dakota no not at all as i hunted a little bit in the beginning of the year just because i had the time and uh i quickly ran out of time as soon as i got back home so (laughs) yeah yeah the the app the app launch and everything has been uh been taking up a little bit of your time to say the least Just a wee bit, just a wee bit. Yeah. I mean, between myself and my other two founders, I think we've been averaging between 16, 17 hour days for the past three months or so, especially after we launched the beta and we were actually able to address all the issues people were having, which is like a necessary step for a lot of people who've never done app development. You have to push it out to a, a larger group of people than you could have in a controlled environment. Like, you know, like 20 people wouldn't work. You need thousands of people. Um, so we were able to push the app out and get that. And then we just had to make all the fixes to all the issues that we, that we came up with. And, um, we're actually, as we speak right now, waiting for it to be for this final, um, this final build of the application, uh, to be approved by Apple. Um, Android's already been approved. Android's always easy, but, um, Apple is always takes, I think Android's or, uh, review process is automated. And I think Apple actually, they want a person on it looking at it, which is fine, but it generally ends up meaning it's going to take longer. Sometimes it's taken, I think sometimes, one time, I think for the beta, we actually waited like nine days. Yeah, I remember that. But um, for this one, I figured out how to get like, how to do the expediting process. It's a little cumbersome, but essentially you can request an expedite as long as you have a good reason. Um, so as soon as we submitted, I immediately went and did an expedite, um, expedited review. So hopefully they get back to us here fairly soon. They could get back to us while we're on this podcast. Nice. Well, that's cool. So how, how's the, have you felt like the beta version has been received up to this point? I mean, really positively. I mean, the only, you know, we've had, we had a couple of people who signed up right away that I don't think understood the point of a beta. And essentially it was just, we're going to give you an app that's going to cost, you know, 60 bucks by the end of this year for 20 bucks for the rest of your life, because we know there are going to be issues with the app and we need to fix them. And so we're, you know, essentially giving you, you know, what I think, you know, in five years, you won't pay what you'll pay for one year of another um, another app service. So, you know, if you wanted to get like an Onyx or a hunt stand or something like that, 
you're going to, and you want all 50 states of data and all of these different data things. And then all the additional stuff that they don't offer that we do, you're looking at 150 bucks for the year or 120 bucks for the year. And we're essentially saying, look, if you're willing to be a guinea pig for a month, um, we'll give this to you for 20 bucks for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and so the initial people that signed up were like, oh, the imagery is not as good here as I need it to be. So, you know, nice try. No, thanks. And then they'd give up and I'm like, oh man, that guy's going to be kicking himself here in about two months Yeah. because we hadn't even, we hadn't even, we hadn't even added our good imagery parts yet. Like we had just gotten, we just had like a, basically our base map. And as I just talked to you about, um, we're adding a lot more CRISPR cleaner imagery in a lot of areas. And it's simply a payment thing and, you know, kind of making relationships and finding the right people and the right, right repositories of this data. Um, on one of these data ads, it's actually um, an organization that generally works with the government that I just knew the guys um, and was able to work out a pretty good deal on some more imagery. So, so I think some people were a little short-sighted or didn't understand the purpose of the beta. So they got off right away. But I mean, since then, it's been every other day I'm getting a message on Instagram uh, or through Facebook Messenger saying, you know, the app helped, helped me kill this deer on this day or you know, I trusted the prediction and this got me here or, you know, this mapping here showed me stuff I hadn't seen before using the historical wind and the polar plots and understanding what the predominant winds are month by month in areas allowed me to be a lot more efficient with my cyber scouting. And I'm getting these stories every other day, honestly. Um, and I'm always making sure to ask people like, hey, I'm going to post this at the end of the year when we're going to do like a wrap up and show all of the people who are, you know, instead of the other applications and stuff out there where people kind of can loosely point to how an application helped them, but people can actually say, look like, you know, I got the predominant wins. I got the historical information. I chose this area because the buck to doe ratios that I saw in your app were, were good. And then I understood the, the predominant wind. And then I looked for the predict and I listened to the prediction. So I went out and I did my scouting and then I waited for the prediction to say full range or transition or something like that. And then I went in there and I hunted on that day and, you know, I killed this buck that I'd never seen on the hoof before. So that's very gratifying for me. And uh, I, yeah. I, it's just like dream come true for me to help people in this regard. No, that that's so awesome. And, and, and that is one of the things that I, you know, I hope uh, the listeners of this podcast understand and others, but like when you have a new app that's becoming as developing, like it's a process, it's going to, you know, and especially with a startup company as you're, you're building things through, it's not going to be perfect right off the bat. You got to look at, and you've helped me kind of understand this from when you first told me about the idea, you know, a while ago was like, this is something that I'm telling you, we're going to get to this point, but it's going to be in phases and working, working our way through it. And you just got to be patient with it. But it's, I, I, I couldn't be more excited to, to be seeing these things. And I've been able to see the future of what this is going. And you, but you were showing me a bunch of examples and stuff before this, and you've been over the last, you know, however many months. And it's, uh, it's pretty awesome to see that. Yeah, I feel like I'm probably, from what I told you, the app's going to be, I think we're probably 85, 90% of the way there. Um, and we've got a few more things that we want to do, um, especially towards the end of this season. And really, this this season's kind of like our primer for next year. You can think of it as like we're like an NFL expansion team. The point this year is just to get a team on the field and show people that we're competitors and that we're serious. Then next year, we're going to kind of bust the door off the hinges um, and, you know, do a much more ag aggressive marketing campaign and much more aggressive with um, the feature set and, and, and kind of 
you know, uh, pushing the technological capacity of what we can do with things like machine learning. Um, I think we're really going to hit our paces next year, but I, I feel like our offering right now from the baseline beta to what we have now as a production application is a very firm offering as far as I'm concerned, yeah. especially for the price. Yeah, no, uh, without a doubt. And so when this does become the, the full production model, what will the price be then as it releases here, maybe tomorrow? Yeah, so I, I believe it's thirty nine ninety nine. I can check that, but I'm 95% sure that's what it is unless somebody you know, did something without me looking. Um, <laughs> we will be adding some mapping additional imagery here in the next month or so. That will probably jack the price up again about five bucks. And it simply, it's simply, we don't even make money on this imagery piece, like this imagery that we're adding. The point here is just to add the minimal amount that we need. And it won't be for people who come on now. It'll just be for people who join after that. And then we'll, we're going to add the Blue Force tracker functionality, and that'll probably bump it up to like 49 um, or so. And my goal on the wall is to never see this application go above 59 bucks. It, there are situations where if we get some of the feature set implemented, it may be 69, or maybe we'll do a 59 version and a 69 version, 69.99 version, but I never want to see it for sure go above that 69. And we're also going to or, um, organize and offer a free version of the application sometime next year as well, um, which is going to have some really cool stuff for, for um, landowners and for non-hunters to kind of give them a, uh, an under the sheets peek um, at essentially very quickly, you can just think of it as if you are, you know, knocking on doors, trying to seek permission, you can tell the landowner, Hey, I'm going to give you a free version of this app. And you can see when I'm in your backyard hunting or when I'm on your land hunting or when I'm in here, um, they won't get all the functionality that everybody else gets from the application. But what they will know is, Hey, you know, my, I'm not going to send my sons in the back today to go get hay bales or something or to get my little kids to go play somewhere or do something because there's a hunter back there. Um, and they'll have that type of situational awareness. Um, and then uh, there's also safety features and stuff like that, that we're going to incorporate. And so it'll be a free version of the app for that. Um, and um, maybe a, a tuned down version for hunters, but we'll probably have two or three different instances of the, of the application come this time next year. Okay. Awesome. And so one of the things that I, while we're talking about the app here as we're getting rolling here is, is I, I'm not going to ask you all of the details on using the app or anything. I really think that if anybody wants to check out Garrett Prawl's video, the DIY sportsman on YouTube, he does a great tutorial on the, the beta app and going through that and how to understand some of the features. But what I want to talk to you about is for right now, during this time of year with the rut, specifically focusing on the the forecast um, part of it, you know, with utilizing the movement and the patterns and how to kind of understand that and what, what you should be looking for as far as uh, good days and how you can be using that for, um, for planning out these hunts during the rut here. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of different ways to use the application. If you're, if you really know the deer or the does in the area and the bucks in the area that you're hunting, there's like one way of, of utilizing the application and what the data is that you're being provided from the application. And then if you are maybe doing like an out of state hunt or you're coming, going into an area you've never been in before, there's kind of like another way to use it. So one of the common questions I get is, is like, well, like what's the best type of prediction? Like is abnormal bad? Is full range good? Is core area not good? So I guess the first thing I'll do is I'll just break down what each one of those things mean very quickly. 
and then I'll kind of describe the scenarios where maybe one prediction is good and maybe one prediction is bad. So there's three different types of movement. And so you can think of movement, um, well, it's, it's broken down in three ways, core area movement, transition area movement, and then full range movement. Core area basically means the buck, the buck or the doe is going to be in and around their core area for the majority of the day. So during your hunting day, you know, your hunting hours, <clears throat> if the, if the prediction is core area, you need to be getting as close to those bedding areas as possible. If you want to see a deer on their hoof during the daylight hours, when they're in transition, you can think of that as, you know, physical transition. You can think of that as a scrape line, as a rub line. You can think of that as a staging area. All that the machine is saying is they're not in their core area and they're not in their destination areas, which is where they spend the majority of the nighttime hours. So you can think destination is like a cornfield, uh, as a as a um, an acorn, you know, an acorn flat or something like that, where the deer are traveling to, um, but they also seem to to assume the most risk when they're in these areas. So if it's like a soybean field, um, a, 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 an acorn flat, these types of places where they're exposed, or the machine is saying there's exposure. Transition is in between those areas. So you can think about transition as any of those things I said before, because all of those things occur between the destination and the bed. <clears throat> and then the third prediction is full range. And what full range means is they can be found anywhere throughout the day, but they'll be moving more in all of those areas than they normally would be moving. <clears throat> and then there's the, the second you know, system of the buckets that you can find yourself in is with in the pattern, which is normal, abnormal, or very abnormal. And I always use kind of like an analogy here. And I think for most people, it makes sense because I even was doing a podcast last night, actually. And um, the guy didn't quite know. He had his own way of interpreting that and kind of ran with it. Um, and then when I explained it to him, he was like, oh, man, this all makes so much more sense right now. But essentially, you can think of it as the buck The buck has these, the machine recognizes when deer are in their, their core areas. In other words, their areas during daylight hours where they're securities whether that's a thicket or it's a it's a knob or a um or a finger off of a ridge or whatever it's where they're spending daylight hours and um the way that they leave that area to go to where they spend the majority of their night hours or their feeding hours or whatever um generally has a pattern to it based on things like the predominant wind uh thermal generation sunlight cloud cover all of those things get a vote and that kind of determines the way that a deer can send check an area before they go into it. So if you think about the way that a deer navigates its terrain, there's the, the way that they do it the majority of the time based on the majority of the wind factors and the weather factors. And that would be the normalized pattern. So if you want to turn it into human terms, you could say when Bill Thompson leaves the house and he goes to work, 90% of the time he's traveling I-95. And then sometimes when there's an accident or traffic's bad on I-95, now he's going in through neighborhoods. So that might be my abnormal pattern. And then that might be Bill's traveling out of town and now he's not anywhere on any of these roads. So that'd be my very abnormal pattern. <laughs> yeah. like those, that's three ways of thinking about pattern. Um, for a buck, it can mean, you know, he usually leaves this bedding. Um, he usually J hooks out of the bedding and moves to the Northwest. And he's keeping the wind at an angle to his nose so he can scent and see where he's walking. So if the majority of the wind in that, in that November say is a Northwest wind, 
then that is the normalized pattern. The normal and the distribution is normalized for that type of um, movement. Whereas if he gets like a weird south, south day, he might not even choose that bedding area anymore because it's no longer conducive to the security. So now he's chosen a different area and he's going to leave that area differently. He might even not go to the field or to the thicket or to the acorn area that he normally goes to. So now he's got an abnormal, um, you know, type of movement. And when you get into really extreme um, situations and extreme weather events and those types of things, now you have a very abnormal pattern. So the machine predicts for those three things. So people very quickly will ask, well, like, what's the best type of movement? And my answer to that question is always, how well do you know the deer that you're hunting? If you know where the deer are bedding, if you know where the bucks are bedding, you certainly can um, hunt on a core area day um, because you are getting into those areas and you just have to be really wary and really, you know, like you would any other time you're hunting a bedding area, get in there very slowly, get in there very early, get in there very quietly and make sure that the wind is working in your favor and you can hunt those core area days. Um, and then if you don't know the area, then maybe you want to wait for a transition area day or a full range day because there'll be more movement during the daylight hours where you can kind of learn more while you're there or you're, or you're kind of doing like a, uh, a sit and learn or you're not necessarily even trying to, you know, put an arrow in a deer, you're just trying to kind of sit and learn the area. Um, then you may want to work, wait for those types of full range days. So for, for myself and how I use it, it's just, I still wait when I'm hunting a buck's bedding area, which is a lot of my public land hunting prior to the rut, <clears throat> I will still wait for transition and full range days. Because even among the most mature deer, I'll find that they change bedding on full range days more often than they would. In the GPS data, when I look in the GPS data, um, the, the, there seems to still be instinctual pressure that deer are, that the bucks, the mature bucks are, you know, there's an instinctual pressure to move and feed maybe because whatever, the crop harvest, harvest hasn't been good. Acorn production is not great. So fat stores are low. And their body is signaling like, hey, you need to get your fat stores to a certain level before the rut or, you know, you're going to rut yourself to death. So the deer now is sensing a drop in pressure and it wants to go out and feed. <clears throat> it, whereas you'll, you'll have one and a half, two and a half year old deer out in the middle of the field or does out in the middle of the field. Mm -hmm. That buck, that 160 inch buck might not be in the middle of that field at 2 p.m., but he's probably changed his bed more often on that day than he wouldn't uh, than he would otherwise which makes him more vulnerable by essence of them just moving more often. Because a lot of times I've had situations where I set right up on a buck that I don't know is there until he's leaving for like the last 10 minutes of sunlight. And, and all of a sudden he's getting up and I'm like, Holy crap, the deer has been there the whole time. I had no idea. Um, so uh, I generally, when I'm hunting buck bedding areas, still wait for the transition in the full range days. So that's a really long explanation there, but yeah, I hope that kind of, um, Gives everyone some context. No, I think that because out of everything with the app, I think I've received more questions on that section than anything. And that's why I really wanted to cover that, you know, in, in detail there. And you should also say that when the production version comes out next to each prediction, and I'm not even sure if it's on the version that you're testing right now, but um, on each prediction, there'll be a little I button they can click. And it kind of runs through all of that and explains everything. So that'll be there on, in the release, in the production release. Yeah. No, I I have, I have heard you told uh, talk about it, but I have not seen that version of it yet. But I think that'll be I think that'll be really helpful um, 
for everyone there the best explanations obviously and and i'll be as we get into like the winter months and everything i'll be making a bunch of videos on how i'm using it and how i'm breaking it down and understanding it and i think that'll help people some more as well so as i play with it more uh this fall and continue to test it and see how things things operate so and one thing one other thing i want to add real quick for uh, another thing i was getting questions on was you know when you hit that forecast button uh you know like oh the weather wasn't right for my area well what it is is when you're on the map it's wherever you have that little uh little crosshair wherever that's at, that's where it's pulling that data from. So it's not necessarily yeah. where you are currently. It's where that, where that crosshair is. And that's really important because, uh, you could be obviously, uh, somewhere else and it's not going to give you the right information. Yeah. We wanted people to be able to quickly scout and like not have to type in areas or if they knew where they were going, they could just move those cross areas, um, those crosshairs and, and get that, um, instantly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's what, um, that, that's one of the things I just think that I'm glad you explained in the detail that you did there. So, um, kind of shifting a little bit here, Bill. So, um, one of the things that within the app, uh, a lot of this information that's being put in there, a lot of that comes from GPS caller data. And I know you sp spent a ridiculous amount of time over the what last seven, eight, maybe even longer years of analyzing this data to get to the point of this app. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, as soon as I started getting access to that type of data or sort of downloading that data or getting it from academics, First, I just have like it, the whole process and the whole, you know, just basically the the, the activity and the pattern of deer behavior um, is something I'm generally just interested in from a personal level. But then also as I was hunting or feeling like I was getting beat by a deer or trying to understand where I wanted to put my next stand or where I wanted to go and hunt or where I should be scouting, I would always go back and reference that data and try to learn as much as I could. Um, and really, I've never gotten bored of it. Like I still get bothered. Like, you know, we'll be getting ready for church here and, you know, people will be yelling at me to get ready and go. And I'll be looking at a buck that I just got information on, um, like, hurry up, let's go. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm looking at buck 11549 right now. Just give me five more minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I might still do it. It just happened to me this past Sunday. Um, so I'm constantly looking at it, constantly trying to learn more. Um, and it's, uh, it, it has not lost its allure to me. Yeah. And, and I think that's, so it's funny because like, before I met you and before I did this, I always followed along with Penn State's deer study and I'd watch all the videos of these specific bucks and how they'd move. And I have access to another study that was done on a specific piece of private big woods piece and, and near me in Pennsylvania. And I just studied that stuff like crazy and was just like so interested in why they would make these movements and do this. Well, you took it to a whole nother level and then involved a machine to kind of <laughs> take a lot of the thinking out of it for it. But yeah. when you were doing like, you know, these manual looking through it and reading through these studies, the the next kind of like series of questions or topics are going to surround that. And with it being the rut and we're, we're focusing on, on that time of year is doe bedding, you know, where, you know, we focus a lot. There's a lot of information, including myself talking about buck bedding, but, does are the focus this time of year as far as that's what the bucks are. I mean, 
to not complicate the rut, it's bucks want to breed does. And so yep. understanding where does like to bed is something that uh, I think is important to talk about and touch on. And so if, in specific and like big woods type settings, um, whether that's hill country, the mountains, or just, you know, other types of stuff, what are some of those types of areas that you see, you've seen that does like to bed in? I mean, most consistently for does, as it pertains to bedding, it's one of those things where I guess if I, if I had to choose an area, if you show me like a big wood setting and I'm thinking specifically big woods right now, I would be looking for like high ridges and flats along those ridges and areas with like lots of like you can see a long ways. Um, and basically like it's far different from bucks, especially bucks, weary older bucks like the areas are there's just nothing in common with them but and then a lot of that those types of bedding situations uh specifically pertain they're always almost close to some type of food for the does like the does are moving in there oh thank you honey my daughter just brought me a beer uh, <laughs> so sorry guys but uh, thank you babe um so it's almost so so in hell country now there's other situations especially when there's pressure or when I know the does are being hunted, they can get spooky like bucks, but instead of using like, you might see, you know, bucks will be heading, will be betting on like a finger on, and they'll take a finger that gives them lots of leeward, um, lots of leeward protection. Yeah. In other words, you know, a, a buck will, you'll, you'll find prime buck betting in an area where no matter what the wind is doing, the buck can very quickly set himself up to be at an advantage using wind and using visibly they can see in front of them or they're near a thicket. Whereas with does, uh, that is not an important thing, but when they're, when the pressure seems to get there for does or as does get old, I'm thinking of one city where I have like seven or eight year old doe data. They, they tend to get on steeper in steeper areas, especially as they get pressured. So it's not necessarily that they're going to like, you know, an area that's prime for buck bedding or what you would, you know, historically see as buck bedding. They seem to get in areas where it's really steep, mm. but it's still right off of an area where it's a flat or it's a ridge. There's and then it's food. focused around food. Yeah. So that, that's like kind of the things that you find there. Um, and on top of that, there's not a lot more specificity that I can get into with doe bedding um, because to be honest with you, sometimes it can be very like, why are they betting there? It makes yeah. no sense to I, You know, and that's, that's what I wanted to, to say is it's funny because I've never... I never really thought of like how to figure out doe bedding by looking at a map other than just walking in the woods and where I'm bumping does at because yep. sometimes it's so completely random. And what I've learned about does is if you ever find an area where does bed, a lot of times the the beds will be angled almost quartering to each other. Like they set up yep. in a circle. So they don't need the perfect wind. They don't need the perfect cover because they have eyes. They have a bunch of eyes. They have a bunch of noses in all these different directions. And like the bigger doe groups that I'll find will bed and sometimes in the most random weird spots if you get a group it's like three four does they might be a little bit more strategic with it maybe like i was sitting on the edge of this uh, clear cut last year it's like a three-year-old cut so there's some brush growing up and stuff and some they just plop down in the middle of this brush they had no visual and but but they they it was just weird but um how and it's funny how they kind of do transition i think a lot of doe bedding does have to come down to you know 
boots on the ground and, and figuring out like the last couple of years, uh, that, that I'd hunted the rut a lot was where I'd found them in early season by me scouting and just bumping does. I just mark those areas. And then, then you start kind of putting things together when you look at the map and figuring out, you know, the transitions between them, where the food's located at. Like a lot of the times, like you said, the bucks might bed quite a ways away from some primary food and where the does tend to be kind of sucking tight to those types of areas, you know, whether that be, um, oak trees and an oak flat or that if there's no oaks in the area that it could be a logging cut or whatever that might be, that would, you know, draw those, draw those in there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, um, bucks and for bucks, like the thing that really, that really differentiates, well, there's many things like we could do a whole different podcast on bucks and buck beddings, but the, the biggest thing for bucks is security. Like food is like, so it's such a distant two and three for bucks. I've seen bucks where they bed and they move two or three miles a night to go and get on food. And then they'll move two or three miles back to get off of, like to get out of that area. And it's just like, holy crap. Like food is so distant, yeah. you know, and and it's such a, um, a a non-factor when you're talking about pressured deer or public land deer, especially now it's totally different. Um, and it's so different, in fact, that I won't use, I don't use high fence deer data. So when I act, when I get or unpressured deer data, I hardly ever use um, because it doesn't, it almost doesn't train with the neural network. In other words, it can distort the predictions so much to use like fenced deer data because they will bed on food. Bucks will bed on food in like these areas like their does. And they don't really ever get that like mental maturity that seems to happen around three and a half or four and a half years old. Where there's like a switch flip, flip switch. And now they're just a different animal, Yeah, which they truly are. Um, that doesn't seem to happen in that data. So um, of course, somebody might be like, well, I hunted my family farm for 40 years and I saw bucks betting right on the food, right off the food. It's like, yeah. Those situations you'll still see that, but I don't think that's what we're talking about here today. No, no, and that no, that makes sense. So you know, I, after we talked about does a little bit there, how bucks uh, are moving during the different phases of the rut. You know, by looking at this GPS data, is there like if you break it down, you know, basically from now even saying to the end of October through the third week in November, what, what are you seeing like different phases from, from these bucks and how their movement looks like? Can you explain a little bit of that? Yeah, it's a bell curve and it's just like, it's very, you can almost plot it on top of the amount of does that are coming into estrus. It's like amount of does, you know, you might get like a couple early October estrus does, and then it'll peak, you know, maybe in your area, it's November 10th or the 14th or something like that. Yep. And then it tails off and it goes back down. It's the same thing with buck movement. Um, now, I wish I had looked this up beforehand. I'm, I'm 95% sure I'm going to give you the right numbers, but I'm just going <laughs> to thinking about it. So I want to say, I'll verify with you. And if I'm wrong, I'll tell you after the podcast, because I store this data and I can look it up and look. But I want to say that early buck movement per hour ranges between about 80 and 150 feet per hour pre-rut, like like October 1st to like the 5th, 7th, something like that, before you start seeing those first doe um, coming into estrus and those first bucks looking for those does. And it'll get up to like 1,200 to 2,000 feet an hour during prime rut. 
So if you think about that, you're talking about, you know, I don't know, between 25 and 50 yards, I guess is another way to say it, um, pre-rut per hour. And that's a lot for some bucks, some bucks it's even less, but it's about the average. And then you'll get them up to, they're covering four or five, six football fields, up to 10 football fields in an hour averaging during the rut. And then a lot of these deer, especially out of the Southeast where we have very meticulous data, um, they'll lose 40% of their body mass. So when you start talking about, you know, they're moving a thousand yards an hour or something like yeah. that, some of these deer. Now most are somewhere in the uh, 1200 feet. So what's that? Three to 400 yards, 400 yards an hour seems to be like a good number when you average it over a 24 hour period. But a lot of them will rut them, like a lot of them will rut themselves to skin and bone um, yeah. while, during that time of the year. And, and But with, with the interesting thing, and I think something that's interesting for hunters to kind of conceptualize and understand is does remain pretty consistent. It doesn't really change all that much uh, throughout the year when it comes to does. Um, female activity actually, as it goes to the prime rut, can actually um, uh, become less. So they might move between 50 and 100 yards a day. And then during peak rut, they might be at 75 yards a day. And then during um, mating, it might be 25, 50 yards. Is that because they're um, trying to hide from the bucks at that point? Yeah. Th- well, what well, when they're being mated, I'm saying, is when the least amount of movement is. Because what will happen is, or what I see in the data, is bucks will push them off to an area. They peel off. You know, one good marker for uh, you're in the peak of breeding is when you start, start seeing babies everywhere alone. Yeah. Um, is, that's a good indicator that peak that the peak breeding behavior is on. Um, and it's another thing that's bared out pretty, pretty evident in the deer data. And they'll just start, you know, that's when you're seeing like, you know, tons of fawns or whatever at like 2 PM and they're just out doing their thing, just unencumbered by the world and not worried about anything. It's because mama's off and she's busy. Um, yeah. and so, uh, th- that is when you'll see some does are really not moving a ton at all. So it's kind of like an inverse, whereas the does are pretty consistent throughout the year. There maybe is a tiny dip during the mating peak of mating, and then they go back to their like you know normalized um, distributions as it's concerning movement. Whereas bucks are like, yeah, you know, through the roof. And do you see like okay a specific buck in the and I don't know if you can see this in the data at all, but can you see like say they find a doe that's ready and they kind of lock down with her for a few days and then all of a sudden they pick back up their activity where they're out searching again and then you know lock down again have you have you seen anything with that sort of data yeah so that's funny i just got that question yesterday from another podcast a guy that i, was, I work uh, um uh, i've been talking to and i'd actually he'd actually asked me this question and i went back to the data and looked at it and provided him an answer and um generally I find like three different types of, um, behaviors. Well, two, 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 I'll, I'll stick with two for this podcast just because of third one. I haven't seen enough data. Um, but it basically boils down to, um, there'll be bucks that will stick with like one doe group and follow that doe group until each one comes into estrus. And then he'll mate, try to mate each one as they come into estrus or peel them off and mate them as they come into estrus but he'll basically be focused on that doe group. Then there'll be another type of buck, which is running around and and checking every doe group that he knows of. And he's constantly moving and never, it never ends. Um, And and there's a third group that there's a third group of bucks 
and these tend to be more wily bucks where they just kind of know when it's on, they'll move in, mate, and leave. And then they're just back up on the hillside waiting, or they might even do more mating during the second part of the rut. But the majority of the personality that I see for bucks is, I hope this answers the question, is essentially ones that will stick with a doe group and just wait for each one to come into, into estrus. And then ones that will um, basically scent check every doe group and just continually keep moving. And I think, and I don't know this to be true, but I think that second group tends to be like your zombie bucks. Like when you see these bucks that just yeah. look like they I love just moving, zombie moving. bucks. <laughs> yeah, they're the best. And, and, and I think that is that second group because they're just constantly like, got to find her, got to find her, got to find her. Um, and, and those bucks, right? Like that's, uh, it's, it's a method, right? And, and, and so that kind of, when you understand that about a buck, I think you can kind of apply that heuristic as it comes to trying to hunt those types of bucks, right? Um, especially during the peak of the rut when, you know, you can do quite well by yourself by just getting downwind of these doe bedding areas and kind of understanding that it's a matter of um, when and not if a buck's going to come by and try to mate these does. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I've found just in a few specific cases in the last, I don't know, three years where there was specific bucks I was focusing on and I had encounters with the deer and they were some of the biggest, oldest mature deer in that last few days of October. And I've seen them be basically chasing a doe around and then they disappear from all my cameras. I couldn't find them for up to like four or five days. And then all of a sudden they'd show back up again and they'd hit like all of my cameras in one day. And then they'd be gone for a little bit again. Not maybe they were just out of the range of where my cameras were, but you know, my thought process was they found what they needed in a doe and they were, they were just hanging out there for a little bit. Yeah. That's that third group. And I'm still trying to get more data because I don't have a ton of data on that group. And it generally be, tends to be the more mature deer. But, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll see like two things there. The first thing is I'll see that type of behavior, but then I've also seen behaviors. And now this is the exception. And I say this every time. And I, I say this because it's rare and it's novel, but it's something cool because bucks are also can be very individualistic the way that they move. Um, but, but, but it's worth to say, I see where there are some bucks who will just, they know when the first doe is coming to estrus, they'll go down. They'll either, they'll either mate that doe or if they don't get to it, they won't participate in the first rut. And then you'll see a lot more participation on the second rut. Um, when mm. either older doe or um, does that didn't get made in the first cycle come into estrus or your younger fawns that now have enough body weight, um, basically gained the body weight they needed to cycle because with white-tailed deer, it's body weight. And they come into estrus during that second cycle. And then those bucks go down there. And again, that those tend to be your bigger and older deer. And um, it's interesting because they won't participate in the first rut or they'll very lightly participate in the first rut. And then it's all bets off during the second rut. And so that to me is like very interesting. And it seems like they're much more, um, what's the word? Um, they're much more pointed. Like they just go to a specific area, they check the does out and they go back to where they are all, at all the time. Then they might go to like another area, come back. And it's just like, they're finely tuned. They know when does are generally, they, they, they've seen enough ruts to know, you know, all of the mistakes that the two-year-olds and three-year-olds yeah. are making. 
they've seen that enough times. They've seen enough of their buddies get arrows in the boiler room to know that until the does are standing, there's no risk in losing your, losing your neck. And it's not even that they know that. It's just that it's a successful pattern of behavior like a dog yeah. or anything else, right? It's just this is what works for me, and I'm still alive, and I'm here, and I'm happy. So I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, they're not thinking that hard about it and strategizing. They just, this is what's worked. And yeah, they pattern of behavior. Yeah, they figured that out. And, and what's, and I've kind of had some theories on like, you know, the real mature bucks for some of the younger ones. Like right now, my cell cam is, cell cameras are lit up with two and three year old bucks just covering ground. I mean, I was out scouting Sunday and had, uh, a buck I was making a scrape literally because the, my scrape tree blew down and I was making another one next to it because they were working their way around it and as I'm pawing up the ground here comes this two-year-old eight point coming in making scrapes the whole way right into me at 10 yards and just like just m- making a lot more mistakes and doing that stuff where I found that some of these other older deer I feel like they they have specific doe groups they they like and that's kind of talking about um some of your you know where you're talking about breaking it down in those three groups or two and a half groups or however you want to put it but they have like specific ones that they like to to hit and it's very I don't know it's they're not just full on going for that two three weeks they have specific times and areas that they focus on and move around with it. And then there was also, there's always an exception, but there was this buck I was chasing and back, I started chasing back in 2014 or 15 and he would just cover freaking ground. Like, I don't know how he didn't get killed, but I, I think he ended up dying of old age. He just, but he would cover so much ground. I'd have him in one day, two miles apart, you know, by from morning till dark. And it was just, it was incredible to see, you know, the, trying to predict these deer is, is definitely difficult. And I think having all of that data that you've had with, you know, so many colored deer, um, from different areas and different things is, is really, really helpful with it. Obviously not foolproof, but it, uh, it helps with it. Yeah. There's observations there. I mean, I've seen deer six, eight, nine miles in a day during the rut where that's just, that's what they're doing the whole time. And they're just continually going, Again, I should also say, just in case I haven't said it yet, I'm not a biologist. All I'm doing is I'm looking at dots on maps and then I'm making inferences about the data. So I just, I want, <laughs> I, I, now I talk to biologists and I'll ask them things. And a lot of times I know in the past I've said things where I have like an idea of why a buck's doing something. And then I'll talk to a biologist. You know, I've got access to some pretty good, you know, actually the best in the business. And um, they'll be like, no, that's dumb. Don't say that. <laughs> like, okay, sorry. You know, like, it's just my idea. Like, because what we'll do is, and I forget the term. I'm trying to think of it as we talk, but you'll basically project human thought on an animal. Um, anthropomorphization. Yeah, I think yeah, is the term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and whatever. Anthropomorphization, I think, is the word. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I, th- again, I'm not a biologist, so feel free to laugh at my expense on how I just try to pronounce that word. Um, but, but again, I always use the word heuristic because it's like, it's a good enough, I have a good enough working theory that even though it's not right, it's allowing me to pattern what I'm observing and make predictions. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like that. No, that's not what the deer are doing when you think they're doing that, but 
you could apply that heuristic. You can think of it as like in the military, we always say, you know, clear a pistol three times before you hand it to your buddy. And it's like, we got taught that from like, as we are privates, you know, you rack the pistol three times and make sure it's clear. And to somebody on the outside, they would look at that and be like, hey, dumbass, it was clear the first time. Like, you don't have to worry about it being clear the second and third time. But then it what it comes down to is, um, but people who engage in that behavior don't ever have accidents where they actually shoot their buddy or shoot themselves in the foot because they've they've developed something that although there's no, if it was clear, if you drop magazine and you clear it the first time, it's clear. If you clear the second time, it's, it's clear again. If you clear it the third time, there's just no way it's not clear. So you've developed a rule that really has no applicability and it's not the reality of the situation, but when you apply it, it seems to work. And it's the same thing I do with beer. I'll think up like a rule in my head. And even if it has no applicability in the deer woods, it's not at all what's happening. Um, because I've observed and I've patterned a behavior and I'm applying myself to it, it still works. So I just, I, I wanted to add that just to say, I'm not a deer biologist. Um, I'm probably going to get things wrong. I certainly, I've learned or observed things that I thought were one way. Then as I got more data, they changed and it turned out being another way. So I just want to add all of that there. Now, that being said, we have about 2000 years of deer data right now. In other words, if you were to add up every minute that a deer wore a collar and that we have the data, and go back in time, you'd be at the time of Christ. That's how much data we have. And I've probably looked at 60 or 70% of that data. So it's just a ton of time spent, maybe 50%, but I've spent a ton of time clicking through deer and just quickly looking through everything they've done throughout their entire life until I find things that are interesting. Um, And so take that for what it is, right? You're talking to a guy who clears a pistol three times every time, he before he hands it to a buddy so that's it, it hey, is what it is i i have more trust in you for that you know if you <laughs> you know if you're right. gonna you're gonna hand me a pistol and you you clear it three times i'm gonna be like okay you know i can yeah, trust that 100 <laughs> percent. and now what i would say is now you clear it three times yeah before you do anything with it <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but uh but before i i go into uh, uh another thing that that I want to ask you about your opinions on something. I want to talk about one more thing with this GPS uh, is the lockdown areas. Do you ever see like based off of either doe or buck collared areas where they're getting, they're definitely being locked down for a few days and you know, they're being bred essentially. Uh, What is there any, anything that you see patterns with, with that, with the lockdown portion? Yeah. I mean, generally again, from what I've observed when they're, they are together, which I have looked for that in the past, it's like 24 to 48 hours with that doe and that buck are together. And um, especially in like hill country, which, so we have access to like live Pennsylvania data where I can go at any time and go and look at what these deer are doing on the ground in Pennsylvania. And I had to like sign forms and do all kinds of stuff in order to get access to this data and say, I wouldn't hunt them and all of this type of stuff. But anytime I can go and look and last year, with this data, I was looking during the rut. And one of the things I observed from Pennsylvania now, again, this is esoteric, right? Because it's just, I've only looked at this data in one section of the country. So people who are listening in like Minnesota, I haven't looked at lockdown in Minnesota. I haven't looked at lockdown in Texas. I haven't looked at lockdown in Florida, specifically talking about Pennsylvania deer right now. Um, And what I've seen is a lot of, like a lot of 
areas that are thick of in cover and a lot of ditches, like a lot of like um, like cuts and stuff like that. It yep. seems like they get pushed into, and they're in these areas, and they'll mate in there for twenty four to forty eight hours, and then the bucks peel off and they're done, and they're on they're immediately on to the next one, like no hmm. no time wasted. Um, well, they only got a few like, weeks out of the year, so they they yep. can't be wasting time yeah, by there's no, relaxing. Like, you know, go and have a cigar and wait, you know, a day or two and recuperate. It's yeah. Like, nope. Like I've literally seen them where two hours later they're with another doe that's standing and is ready to that is ready to mate, and so and the, and they'll do it right away. So definitely a stud. Um, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so what I find though is it's cover, it's thick area, it's places where. Um, the sunlight can touch the ground and it's creating, um, you know, cover and an ability to obfuscate their, um, to obfuscate their, um, uh, their silhouette so that yeah. they can't be seen. Um, and so people generally call that the lockdown phase of the rut. But the other thing I will say is, especially if you're not a picky um, hunter, it can be a very good time to harvest a two and a half or three and a half year old deer. Um, in fact, uh, I have access to some one data as a study out of Texas where they were calling and using like calls and they were looking at the effect of like how deer react to calls. And during the lockdown phase of the rut, you really get a lot of activity and responsiveness to calls out of your like two, three and some four and a half year old deer that aren't locked down with a doe during the lockdown phase. Mm. In other words, it's like, Oh man, I haven't made it a doe yet or it's last ditch effort. And now everybody's gone home with their girlfriends and it's like, this buck's at the bar and he's, really, yeah. he's willing to go. It's 2am for him. Yeah. It's like, whatever I hear, I'm going yeah. you know? <laughs> to, so uh, they will respond more to like rattling sequences and calls and bleats um, because they're getting desperate. So, I mean, if you're not picky and you're willing to get like a two and a half, three and a half year old deer, um, it can be a very productive time is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will be like, Oh, it's lockdown right now. I'm done for the next couple of days. It's like, well, if you have the time, be out anytime during peak rut. Cause the moment that buck peels off, he's looking for the next girl. Yep. So, you know, don't stop. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta be there for it to happen. And by the time he shows up and hits your camera or does whatever, you might be too late because he's already, he's on the move. Precisely. Sort of deal. And uh, it's and and uh, and especially for people that hunt, you know, say the same areas year after year, you can start learning some of these things for your specific area as well and understanding, you know, um specific doe groups that they like to visit and times when they're moving and, and I found a lot of that to be very um uh, annual or, or perennial it happens it's happening every year around the same times and they're doing some similar stuff and and that data can be really really useful when you're paying attention to it and and you know w- one of the things that i started doing is i well, i used to always do this just in my either my phone notes or in a notebook but i'd write down you know when i'd have encounters and what was going on and all these things now um throwing a plug in here, but within the, the Spartan Forge app, being able to use the journal entry feature. That's one of my, I've told you that, and it's one of my favorite features of it. Cause I can write down, it tags your GPS location, tags the weather that's going on, what's going on. I put all that data in there and it's saved. And you can even add that to the map as a pin. So you can go back and look at it and, and utilize that data because you're big on, you're obviously huge on looking at data and understanding it. And I think 
I don't know. I'm huge on it from a deer hunting perspective of looking at, you know, my trail camera data, looking at all these things and trying to make uh, potential predictions in my head, you know, that of specific deer or maybe a specific area and learning from it. And by logging that information, because if you think you're going to remember it, you're not, at least my head's not good enough to do that. But I would, I would like to infer that a lot of people are the same, same way with it. So Oh. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, that well, one of the things you'll, that people will see in the production update as well is you'll be able to, pr- um, uh, the, the beta version of the application, you can only take one deer per uh, journal entry. Now you can take general, uh, many deer per journal entry. And then what you can do is you can go to the my content space and you can pick, if you name the deer, in other words, if you have like, you know, a deer with a broken like G2 and you call them lefty. If you name that deer lefty in every journal entry, you can go to the My Content tab and then you can click lefty. Then you can look on the map and see every place you've seen lefty, you know, during that year, Um, which is, is, you know, deer, um, with the exception of the rut, um, they stick to their places where they know. A lot of people will say these things, and this is a different podcast for another time, but but they'll be like, oh, I spoke, I spooked that deer. He'll never come back. I almost never see that in the data. I almost never see that somebody pushes a deer out of an area and that buck never comes back. And the thing that I say to people is if you're a buck and you're choosing bedding because you want to be alerted at the slightest amount of disturbance in your area by a predator or human or whatever, or I guess they're one and the same to the deer. And and then you're able to escape that intrusion for you, the area worked. So why would you leave an area that works? Yeah. Like, to try to test out it, a new area. Yeah. But. Yeah. It's like, now I got to go learn a new place. It's like, no, this place worked for me. I saw that human, you know, from the parking lot, I'm going to continue to be there It's on you as the predator in this situation to say, okay, he caught me coming from the parking lot. Maybe now it's time to come from the North and sneak up behind him and watch him come in, you know, and that's, that's yeah. kind of, you know, you start playing chess there instead of checkers. Yeah. Um, all right. So the, the one thing I want to ask you, cause Bill, you're not only, you know, somebody that builds an app and looks at a bunch of data, but you also hunt a lot and have successfully hunted a lot through the, the years. So based off of the data and your own personal experience, what are some of the, you know, your stand type placement, you know, during the rut and maybe even that's, you know, different parts of the, the rut, but what, what are the types of areas you're looking at? Well, I think one of the reasons why, and I'll, I'm going to throw you some um, credit now. Um, one of the reasons very early on, I've, or I, I've always been interested in your content, but like myself, you're a voracious scrape hunter. Um, and I am a voracious scrape hunter. Every one of my cameras right now that are in the woods with the exception of maybe two or three, I'd say 80 to 85% of my cameras um, are over scrapes. And I wait, and these scrapes are all scrapes that are near bedding for does. And what I do is it's killing me right now as I see, cause my cameras are getting lit up. Um, I will wait until I start seeing bucks near those, those scrape for the areas where I know I'm thinking specifically about this area uh, called Green Ridge State Forest. I know there's like three or four areas where does are always bedding. And what I do is I know there's areas where there are certain trees that are good for scraping and the height of the branches are right and the area is right and it's close enough to doe bedding. And I have cameras year in and year out and they're cellular cameras 
And the only reason I go there to those cameras is to either hunt or replace batteries. And all I do is I wait for those cameras to start getting hot and then I'll move in there and start hunting those scrapes once I know that they're being tended and being worked. And they are, I don't know if you find the same thing. I think you do based on what I've heard um, in your podcasts in the past, but um, they perennially, or in other words, every year, those same scrapes will get used in areas, especially like, and the other thing too is, this is 10,000 acres I've been hunting for almost 10 years. I've got four cameras where I know every year on this 10,000 acres, there are community scrapes that's mm-hmm. near bedding where these does are, these does and bucks will interact on the same camera. And I've got that on there. So, and that, and that's been my thing. Um, even though 80% of buck activity on scrapes is night activity. In fact, does hit scrapes more during the day than bucks do statistically. Um, I'm keyed on that other 20% of the time those bucks are in and around those scrapes during the peak of breeding because maybe it's because I'm a caveman or whatever, but I can see the scrape. I can see that it's hot. I can get up in the stand. Sometimes you can smell them and you're like, I know this is good. So like when someone else is like, I like a hunt bedding or I like to be near bucks or I like transition, all of those things are great. I see, I see reasons to hunt all of those things. But for Bill Thompson, and after looking at the data and seeing all of this stuff, it's just made me more of a believer in scrapes than I ever have been. Even if the bucks aren't working them, they will be in and around them or trying to scent check them or just using them as trying to find out who's who in the zoo. Um, so for me, that's that's pretty much my tactic and technique. Um, and, you know, my biggest deer um have been killed over scrapes yeah um no i'm i'm in the same boat with you there i love scrapes and and you know i i switch from hunting scrapes that are close to buck bedding to doe bedding really in the third week it can it can fluctuate i kind of let my cameras tell me year to year it changes a little bit when um sometimes you know the end of october i'm focusing still on buck bedding as they're you know, coming back to bed later from checking doe bedding areas. And then there's also, once you get to the point where you start seeing, uh, they're looking to, to get a little bit weird here with some of these does. I, I want to focus on those scrapes around that doe bedding. And that's what I've seen, you know, recently. And I'll focus on that up until for me personally, till about like November 7th, 8th, 9th. And then I focus to a little bit more of those transition areas with, you know, doe bedding pockets in, in different areas that might not be focused um, around all those scrapes or around a specific doe bedding, but I always have a scrape in the area. If, if I have to build my own, I'll do it. But like, that's, that's what I, I've, I've really tried to tried to do and have kind of learned my, or I, I keep adjusting my strategy year to year. And that's kind of where I'm at at this point. I'm always amazed because for me to adopt that style and start doing that, I had to go to GPS data. Like in order for me to get to where I'm at and where I just told you about how I do it, it was not until I had two or three years looking at GPS data. And again, I, I realize we're both kind of endorsing each other right now, but it's one of the reasons why um, I wanted to endorse your podcast. Cause I really think at least um, philosophically we approach hunting the same way. One of my favorite podcasts of yours is with your dad and he's talking about scraping activity. And I want to yeah. say it was last year or maybe the year before, I can't remember when it was from. But um, uh, your dad, who also, I believe, at least from when I last listened to this podcast, you guys were talking about scrapes and how you approach scrapes and how you hunt all of those things. 
and, and it's just for me, it's like you have people who've just spent an insane amount of time in the woods and you have people who've spent an insane amount of time looking at deer data. They're coming to the same conclusion about something. Yeah. For me, being an intelligence officer in the army, um, we basically have this uh, way when you're trying to certify a piece of intelligence, you want multiple ways of arriving at the same answer. It's like the scientific method, essentially. But you've got, you know, essentially three or four different ways that I can point to scrapes and say scrapes are the right thing. And then when you say, hey, you know, I focus, I move my focus from um, scrapes around buck bedding to scrapes around doe bedding, you know, around the third week of October or whatever you said it was. Um, that's absolutely something else I see in the data is, and it's another podcast, but like these p- competition scrapes or what I call them that are kind of in between buck bedding or near buck bedding that bucks exclusively seem to be using. And then that transition to scrapes that are near doe bedding, um, it, 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 it uh, makes sense to me. It, it, it's very easy for me to just uh, embody and, and, and understand and then apply myself and I know I'm doing the right thing when I see bucks working scrapes or fresh scrapes, or you can smell the scrape is like, or, you know, it's just been getting worked. But then the last thing I'll say about scraping, um, and, and I think you could probably do better. I should start sending you some of these studies so you can look at them. But, you know, for me, it's like the best scraping for me or the best time for scraping is like a lot of guys will be getting into an area at like 4 a.m. or something like that. It's like you can wait until like 7 or 8 a.m. for a lot of these scrapes. Yeah. Because a lot of them near these doe areas will be getting work between like 9 and 2, like 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. And I see a drop off in the afternoon. I'm not saying you shouldn't hunt scrapes in the afternoon. That's not what I'm saying. There's still a ton of scraping that happens in the afternoon. But what I'm saying is when I look at the data and the time of day that it's occurring, the afternoon scraping tends to happen closer to dusk. Whereas some of the morning scraping, scraping can, morning to like early afternoon is really like a hot spot. When I, when I plot all of the times and I look at it, it's something like, I want to say, and I could be wrong and I'll verify this, but maybe like 55 or 60% of the scraping around the peak of the rut within two weeks of the peak of the rut happens between like 9am and 2pm when it's daylight. Now, not nighttime, it's almost yeah. always nighttime, but when you talk about just daytime scraping you can see a lot of it happening between 8 9 a.m and 2 p.m around doe bedding areas so well like okay how does a hunter use that my thing would be like get in slow at 7 a.m get up your tree slowly and sit there to like 1 or 2 p.m and then move out Um, one of the reasons i'm not an afternoon scrape guy and i'm not saying people shouldn't be you absolutely can do it but i'll also find a lot of mature bucks will come in and just scent check scrapes in the afternoon downwind at like 30, 40, 60 yards where you could be downwind of that scrape. And now that buck is downwind of you. And and now he's like, ah, hunter and human on this scrape. Whereas that doesn't happen as much as I find in the data. It could be wrong later. In the morning, they're more like you know, trying to get into those doe groups and molest them and get near them. And they're really trying to be, they're more aggressive um, whereas, you know, I, I guess my biggest fear, especially with afternoon scrape hunting is, is that the buck smells me because most of the scraping happens at night. Right. So that my scent now is fresh between like two and 6 PM. And now the buck's coming in at 645 or 715, the sun's down. He either hears me, sees me or smells me. 
and just as like, oh, I, now I, I'm going to avoid this area for a day or two, or I'm going to yeah. be much more, um, I, I'm educating him less. Whereas, sure, he could be smelling my scent at like my 9 a.m. scent, but it's going to be much more, it's going to have a lot more time to cool off. It will smell like I was there a lot earlier. And Bucks, believe it or not, can tell the difference between just like a dog can if something was there at 9 a.m. or something was there at like 6 or 7 p.m. So all of that's to say, out of all of that, I still prefer the mornings into the early afternoon, and I generally get off and I'll hunt like a different type of area for the run. Uh, that, no, and I don't. No, I was just say oh, that's, that's, right. that's super interesting as far as that that afternoon uh, spot and the way that you think about that. And I, I haven't thought about it in that sort of way as far as the way they they move in those places and and. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm really going to pay attention to that. Going yeah, it's forward. just a lot of the scraping and a lot of the scrape checking activity happens throughout the night. Yeah. Yep. Like I when, totally when, agree. when you look at it. It, it. And so if I'm getting out of an area where I know there's a lot of scrapes and I'm getting out of it at like 6 45 PM, I know I'm bouncing bucks and that I'm, that they are smelling me and seeing me, especially with my flashlight on my head, you know, getting out of there late at night. And I could be educating them again. These are my theories that I've built up off of, you know, looking at these things. I could be wrong about all of this. It seems to work for me. And I like, I far more prefer killing a deer in the morning anyway. Oh, I don't know why, yeah. but there's nothing better to me than like pulling a deer out of the woods at 11 a.m. Yeah. Or having all day to, to get it out. And yeah, you know, it's so much nicer. It's so much nicer. So one of the things that you said there is um, about that. I, I j- literally just talked about this, but with how, you know, you'd rather go in at seven or even 8am, you know, as you're working your way in and get up, especially during the rut time frame around those doe bedding. That is, that's something my dad taught me when I was younger. Like I, I remember when he'd be, I'd be like, you know, having trouble getting up in the morning just after day after day of trying to sit, sit all day. He's like, sleep in a little bit, hunt your way in, you know, take your time, climb up in your tree. And what we found is, you know, a lot of these does don't get to that, that last, doe bedding area sometimes until 9 a.m as it is you know they don't get to that spot they're going to set up they might have a first bedding area then they come to their like home bedding spot you know for the day and those bucks know that they're can be transitioning so why would they want to check a bedroom if there's nobody in there yet and you know wait and my my theory always was that They'd be out feeding or running does at night or whatever. They might lay down for a couple hours first thing in the morning there until everything gets settled back down. And their odds of finding does in those bedding areas is a lot higher when they start moving. And they, or maybe they're even just crossing doe trails and they, they know, okay, this is fresh. She just went back to bed an hour ago. And yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I was looking back at it and the last four bucks that I killed during the rut and might even be five had been after nine 30 in the morning and before 2 PM. Precisely. That's no yes. joke. And and two of them have been on the dot at noon. Like just, I, I love that time frame. Everybody's out eating their sandwich, sitting in their truck and I'm sitting there zombie mode in the tree. Yeah. Maybe that's why pushing maybe they're deer. pushing them all to me, but <laughs> well, the other thing too, the other reason I really like it is because Again, I've seen studies where um, hunting clubs, because they want to learn about their deer, um, the hunters actually log their time going in and out to stands. And I, can, I know where the stands are on the maps. And I've seen what bucks do 
at like 5:45 when the guy you're loud. You can't help but be loud unless you're walking like a like a church mouse. You've got a flashlight on your head that can be seen for miles. Yeah. And you're walking in there an hour before sunup. Yes. Can you be successful? Yes. But um, then you look at guys where they're not meaning to be. And I think on this one study, um, it was like eight or eight or twelve percent of the time they were seeing more mature bucks and they'd gotten in late in the morning. Now, my theory, again, theory, my theory is they're coming in and they're still hunting in. They're not using a flashlight. There's some light out so they can be quieter and they can just pay attention as they're moving in with that first light. They're not using a flashlight. They're not as loud. They're not falling over sticks or being loud with the leaves and basically still your hunt way into your, into the stand, get up, set up and wait for that 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m. movement, and then get out of there so that when they do come, when the night bucks do come by, my thought is at 7 p.m., they're like, they can smell a human, but they're also smelling a human that they know was there five, six, seven hours ago. Yeah. And not one that just left the tree stand. So again, it's like a weird way of thinking, but it's worked for me. Like my, my the biggest buck I have mounted in my house right now um, was a 155-inch Maryland buck that I killed over a scrape at like 8.45 a.m. And it was exactly that scenario where I got in there at like 7.15, light of day. I watched bucks chasing as I walked in. The, the woods were on fire. I got up to the stand and I watched this buck work like two or three scrapes before he finally got to me um, and, and put an arrow in him at like 9, I want to say it was 9.30 or something like that. But to me, it was like this... To me, I liked it so much more because I didn't feel like I was being as intrusive mm-hmm. to the deer woods as I would be at like 4 a.m. Now, sure, you can go in there at 4 a.m. and make a bunch of noise. And yes, it will calm down by like 2 p.m. But I would I would think that the bucks that are seeing those lights in the woods where they generally don't see them are like, oh, okay, I'm just going to avoid that area. Again, I don't have a ton of data on that. This is my working theory. It works well for me, and I'm going to continue to do it. Yeah, no, and 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 the the one thing that I will say on that is like, for me, uh, when I'm hunting buck bedding, it's different. Like, because I'm yep, absolutely know, 100% different, and that's when I'm trying to get you know early season or so. Like, I'm get, I'm getting in there earlier to try to to catch them coming back to bed. That's a whole different game plan you know absolutely little, little, i'm getting in there as early as possible yes hunt yeah on those days i'm getting in there i'm talking about right two, I, what i do is i work two and a half weeks back from prime rut for about 80 percent of the u.s when it gets to be eight two and a half weeks back from prime rut and i've shifted my hunting to scrapes i'm getting in there at first light yep now very early first light i'm, I'm basically leaving the truck once i can start to see without yep. a flashlight and that's when i move in there um, and I try not to use the flashlight. I try to move slowly. I will sit against trees if I hear noise and I will wait. Sometimes it can take me an hour and a half to move 30 yards, 40 yards, because there's a lot of movement or I'm just weary or whatever. And I'm moving as slow as I can. I'm not trying, I'm trying to make, especially if it's like a crisp morning, I will take a ungodly amount of time. Walk, if it's crisp and silent and dry, I will take forever to move 40 <laughs> yards to a stand i'm serious like i'll take forever i'll take three steps wait by a tree and look around three more steps pick my next tree wait and and look around and move in slowly like that again just because 
um, for me, it, it tends to work better. You got to get with Johnny on his strategy on how he gets close to trees. Have you heard about oh, it yet? I can't wait to hunt with him. You, you wait. He, he taught me how to walk like a deer and how to how to do the whole heel to toe thing and like how not or how not to sound or no no it's not heel, heel to toe is how we walk and you want to flat foot it as you're going up and he almost makes more noise as he's doing it because it sounds like hoofs coming in the ground rather than the human rocking their foot as they're going he's got like he's has me thinking a whole different way about it and that's johnny to a t from millions of freaking hours in the woods of learning yeah. this stuff he doesn't I, I, learn I, anything from anybody else other than johnny's thoughts I, I i cannot wait to get into johnny's deer camp for the veterans hunt yeah. and to spend that week with him um he is ser- seriously one of my favorite people in the world yeah and the guy would give you a shirt off of his back and he's just one of the genuinely one of the best people i've ever met in my life um but also he is a riot yeah like just a hilarious and a great hunter and would give you he, the shirt off of your back, his back um, to anyone. So um, just you talking about it just gets me excited because he'll text me and update me on, you know, developments for the veterans hunt, like things <laughs> that are going on and stuff. And I'm like, crap, I just want to be with him right now, getting stuff ready. Like, I just, yeah. can I just go over there and do that, please? I, know. I can't wait. Um, and the last thing I want to ask you with um, talking about what you do with the scrapes there. So what are you doing in the afternoon? So once you're transitioning from say 2 PM or whatever, you're getting, you're leaving that scrape set up. What are you hunting for the afternoon? Generally, a lot of times I'm not generally what I'm trying to do in those afternoons is like spend time with the family, go home and get dinner. Yeah. Like now that I have kids, if I didn't have kids, um, I didn't hunt as crazy as I do now, especially during the rut. And if I wasn't, then probably what I would be doing is moving to like a funnel or something where I might hope to catch like a late mover or someone that's just trying to get somewhere destination yep. so that I'm not scaring them on the way out. Yep. Like trying to not affect the deer woods as much as on the way out. But like these days right now, if I'm hunting around where I live at like 2 PM, 2:30, maybe three, I'm leaving the woods quietly and slowly and I'm still hunting my way out um, and just hunting on the way out. Maybe I'll do like a grunt sequence or something and try to catch some crazy buck that's just looking for a fight or something. Um, but I'm generally hunting slowly on my way out. And if I had the time or like maybe during the veterans hunt, if I go out and hunt for a full day, I'll move to some kind of like choke point or something and try to catch yeah. a zombie cruiser. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to spend some time with you during the, the veterans hunt and we'll be doing a full podcast with a bunch of different people on it at that point, maybe even multiples, probably multiple podcasts. And it's going to be just absolutely epic. It's going to be awesome. And there's more people coming that I haven't even talked about. And, um, we're going to be doing more giveaways before it for more stuff. And so just stay tuned to our Instagram and to your Instagram. Um, and I think it's going to be, uh, the best time that you can have in the deer woods, um, with a group of guys is what we're about to experience here in about 10 days or so, or however long away it is. Yeah, I know it's, it's coming quick. And so anybody can go find, uh, well, should be able to find the Spartan Forge app in the app stores, uh, real soon here. And then also uh, it's spartanforge.ai, Instagram, Spartan Forge, and then, uh, Facebook, Spartan Forge Technologies, if I'm thinking that correctly. Yep. Absolutely. So there we go. I Thank just you both. Covered that for you. So <laughs> very good. Thank you. No, it's great. And uh, I, I'm still answering probably 30 or 40% of the messages on social media. If people have a question for me, 
Um, they can just put like, you know, this is for Bill or whatever. And I'll try to, I, I try to get to those and answer those once a week. I'll usually spend an hour or two drinking whiskey and answering most of those messages. Um, and that's something I want to continue to do no matter how large this company gets. So if people have questions for me, please hit me up there and I'll do my best to answer them. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Bill, for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.